Well, please turn in your Bibles to John chapter 13, or there's a Bible there in the pew in front of you. We've been in this series called Jesus Is, letting God's Word speak directly to us, and uh, we will return to finish the book of John later. We're going to take a a little break from that just to have this uh, spiritual journey together we're calling Inspired from Dust to Glory, because we believe God is inspiring us, and just as He inspired people to uh, speak His Word, and He inspired the world to be... um, Created and he inspired Christ to come into the world to uh, die for uh, all mankind. He's inspiring us as well to be his church in this place and to represent him. And to um, we want to be sure that we are leaving things for the next generation. I think it's getting tougher to become a Christian in this world, and uh, we want to leave this place as a great tool in their hands so that uh, for a long time to come, till Jesus returns. We see him using South Shores as a beacon of light here on the hill. So we're in John chapter 13. We are with Jesus and his disciples right in the upper room on the night that they shared what we've called the Last Supper. You get to hear what happened. You can hear what Jesus had to say and listen to what Jesus told them and how they responded. And you have to wonder if you were put in the same situation, would you respond just like they did? Would you? Of course, they were kind of all over the map. You had Judas, you had Peter, you had John, and you had all of the others responding different ways. But they seem kind of clueless, the disciples. Of course, it was all men. But, uh, you know, Jesus knows that he isn't going to be with them very long. And uh, this is his last opportunity to try to teach them anything. And so he's teaching his disciples two powerful lessons in John 13, um, how to live in the joy of the Lord by serving others and loving others. So serve and love are the two things that he's lifting up here at the Last Supper. Let's look at John 13, where Jesus shows he is the ultimate servant, and he's trying to teach them about serving. John 13 begins, now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of the world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Every year for the Passover feast, Jewish people would flood the city of Jerusalem, swell to about 10 times its size at the Passover feast to celebrate the deliverance of God, uh, taking his people from slavery in Egypt to freedom in the promised land. And the uh, Passover is rich in imagery of the lamb who was sacrificed and how its blood was put on the doorposts. And so when the angel of death came through, uh, would see the blood and would pass over uh, the people. And so the lamb would save uh, their lives. And remember, John had introduced Jesus in chapter 1. He had said about Jesus, behold the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Well, a sacrificial lamb is going to be sacrificed. It, its place is to die so that others might live. And every year they would come to Jerusalem to celebrate this feast of the Passover, and the celebration would be the same. The meal would be the same. The menu would be the same. The conversations would be repeated. The reminders on the tables would all be in the same spot. Everything was the same. They were traditions. I mean, you know about traditions and holidays and that kind of thing, how you do uh, things pretty much the same every year, and people get uh, so they can depend on it. And so Jesus sent two of his disciples to prepare for the Passover. I'm sure they could have just spoken shorthand. They go to the uh, place where they're going to rent a, uh, a meeting hall so they can meet. They go to the owner, and they say, we want to uh, be prepared to uh, sacrifice, uh, celebrate the Passover. And the guy would have said, well, okay, it'll be ready. And so that night, they're all headed to the Passover at the same place, and uh, 
I think the disciples think, you know, we've got this figured out. I've been doing this since I was a boy. Every year it's the same. We just got to be sure we're on time. And they didn't realize that they're actually taking their final exam after being, Jesus has taken them to school for three years. I mean, they seem clueless. And yet Jesus, on the other hand, is acutely aware that he's going to be offering himself for the sacrifice of the sin of the world and that he's going to lose his life within 24 hours. Well, the first thing that's supposed to happen in their culture when they came into this kind of celebration is that there was supposed to be a servant there and a a basin of water where they could get their dusty feet washed so they would arrive at the banquet clean. But when they arrived for the dinner, nobody was at the door to wash their feet. And the basin was there, the water was there, the towel was there to dry off afterwards, but there is nobody there to serve them. It was an uncomfortable moment. You ever been in a situation where you're with somebody, maybe even they're important or they're speaking or something, and they have something on their face, you know, they really need a Kleenex and they don't know it, but you do, and yet to tell them would be so confrontational, and everything they're saying is being compromised, but what is is hanging on their face, and somebody should say something or do something, but you don't know what to do about it, it's awkward, you can feel the tension. I can remember with my dad looking at him and, uh, you know, said, Dad, you know how you could look 10 years younger? He said, what? I said, wipe your chin. And so that was so funny that every time now when I have something on my face, they'll say, you know, you could look 10 years younger. And, you know, okay, there's something on my face. But um, they were in this situation. It's awkward because somebody should do something. Anybody could. Everybody is watching and nobody moved. And the disciples are experiencing this tension that's going on of somebody should be washing the feet. Nobody is there. Where is the person to do it? How come he's not here? How come she's not here? It should be the lowest house servant. And there's an elephant in the room. And they're all thinking, well, not me, not me. Somebody should be doing that, but not me. In fact, on their way there at this party, they've actually been arguing with each other. Who's the greatest? Who's the most significant? Who's the most important? Kind of embarrassing if, I mean, they didn't know Jesus knew about it, but, you know, you know, I'm a little more important than you because of this and because of this and because of this. So anybody who goes and picks up the towel and does the necessary task of washing the feet and blessing everybody would obviously be admitting, I'm out of the running for who's the greatest because that was the lowest servant who did that. So who should get the feet washed? Peter and John probably thinking, we did all the, the uh, preparations for this party. We've done our part. Andrew's probably thinking, well, why don't James and John and and, uh, uh, Peter do something? They have the inside track with Jesus. He's always given them special attention. They're supposed to have covered all of the details. James and John are thinking, well, mom's going to ask if we can sit on his left and his right in this new kingdom. What would it look like if if then we're washing the feet before that? It's beneath our dignity. Peter's thinking, well, I really am the greatest. I mean, Jesus always calls on me first. I'm always speaking up for the group. In fact, in every list of the disciples, I'm number one. And Thomas is probably thinking, we're going to (laughs) die. I knew we shouldn't have come here. This is a war zone. What were we thinking? And then there's Matthew who's thinking, you know, this group's a lot more uptight than all of my tax collecting buddies. When I used to hang out with them, and Jesus is testing them. Who has listened to his, his, his messages and has learned to be a servant? And they are failing, and they don't know it. What Jesus found was a room full of proud hearts and dirty feet. Their heads are full of thoughts of thrones. Jesus is going to be the king, and I'm going to be really important alongside of him in his court. And how it must have broken the heart of Jesus. Jesus who said, I didn't come to be served, I came to serve. 
It's their final exam, and they didn't get it. The yardstick of service measures greatness in God's kingdom. That's how you measure greatness according to Jesus, service. Serve in humility and compassion. Serving others because of Christ and His love for you and for me. Serving at home. Serving at church. Serving others at work or at school. Serving others. It says in verse 2, During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray Jesus, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into His hands and that He had come from God and was going back to God, Jesus rose from supper. He laid aside His outer garments Taking a towel, he tied it around his waist, and then he poured water into a basin, and he began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. This is a powerful lesson. What does it mean to serve? What do servants look like? And Jesus is the model servant. He, how does he show his disciples that he loves them and cares for them? It's not all his preaching. It's not all his miracles. It wasn't his, the, the parables. It was when he washed their feet and then later that same night when he went to the cross to die for their sin. Jesus saw what needed to be done. He saw that even his brightest students were failing in this one. So Jesus himself stepped into the duties of the humble servant who washed the feet of others. You know, to experience joy in your life, serve others in the name of Christ. Just to serve. See what needs to be done and do it. Notice what other people need as far as help around you. Step in and step up and do it. And do those things with great joy. Because there's joy that comes when we serve the Lord by taking care of others. I have a friend who's a colonel and then he was promoted to general. Well, some of us who are never going to be generals don't have to worry about it. But after you become a general, then you have to go to, and they have a fancy name for it, but the real name is the General Charm School. It's two or three weeks long where they learn general kind of stuff, okay? And so when my friend got back from charm school, I said to him, so tell me, what do they teach you at general school that us colonels and below will never know? He said, well... Here's what they said. If you see a problem, you own it. You don't have to ask anybody else whose problem is that. If you see a problem, you own it. It's yours. You don't have to say, you know, who authorized that or who's in charge or who's going to be willing to solve it. If you see it, you own it. Well, that might not be true for you or for me or for anybody else who's not a general. But if you see a problem, you could ask yourself, how do I help solve that? Who is responsible for it? How do I get alongside and be an encouragement and, and help lift the load for the sake of Christ? Because Jesus, as King of kings and Lord of lords, far outranks any general. And he saw two problems in the room that night. One is that their feet were not getting washed because somebody had missed their moment. And the other is he saw all the hard hearts. Nobody willing to step out and serve. His disciples were failing this. And Jesus said, I didn't come to be served. I came to serve and to give my life as a ransom for many. So here they are around the table. And it wasn't like Leonardo da Vinci said, you know, where they're, put it, where they're all on the same side of the table sitting up. They were reclining. They were lying down. They were all the way around the table. You have, you know, uh, uh, John on one side of Jesus, Judas probably on the other side, and Peter across the table. And, of course, they've been arguing which one's going to be greatest. And then they all get there, and Jesus arrives, so they get quiet. And they're failing to serve like Jesus taught them. 
And so Jesus picks up the towel, he picks up the bowl and the rag, and he begins to wash their feet, and everybody's feeling comfortable, everybody knows that's not right. In fact, just Jesus doing it is kind of a rebuke of everybody else who's been arguing. And Peter's the first to express the tension out loud. He says, Lord, do you wash my feet? And Jesus answered him, what I'm doing right now, you don't understand, but afterwards you'll understand. And Peter said, you will never wash my feet. And Jesus said, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. And Simon Peter said, well, then, Lord, not only my feet, but my head and my hands also. I mean, Peter's so human, isn't he? I mean, he, he just first said, you're never going to do it. Then, well, do all of me. <laughs> Notice what he didn't say. He didn't say, Jesus, hand me that bowl, give me that towel, let me do that job. He didn't do that. All the disciples They're reaching for a throne, not a towel. They're working on position and power and prestige and importance. And Jesus says, unless you let me serve you, you have no part of me. And Jesus does serve them with washing their feet, but then also he serves them by going to the cross. Peter says, you'll never wash my feet, but Jesus does. And then Peter says, I'll lay down my life for you, but Peter doesn't. Jesus didn't want the spotlight on himself. He just did the job. He just met their need. In fact, then Jesus went on to say, the one who's bathed doesn't need a wash except for his feet, but he's completely clean. And you are clean, but not all of you. For he knew who was to betray him. And that's why he said, not all of you are clean. Now, Judas, of course, we know has gotten to this party already having talked to the high priest and arranged a price to betray Jesus. And Jesus here is talking about our feet need cleansing, but also our souls, that our souls need a bath. They need salvation, but it's also a daily cleansing, a recognition of Jesus' forgiveness that we need of returning to him, returning to him, and to continue to receive his forgiveness for where we slip up. And Jesus says there's only one kind of greatness, a greatness to serve. So Jesus washes their feet because their hearts are proud and they need a lesson in humility and their feet are dirty. And the God of the universe is down there scrubbing the jam from between their toes, cleaning them up. And you and I are called to be servants, servants who meet needs. And you know you're not greater than Jesus. So we know this applies to you and to me. What does it mean to wash the feet of a disciple today? I know symbolically we've done it once in a while just to remind us how humbling it is. But to be a servant is to do something to meet someone else's need. So where is God calling you to serve? Well, maybe with a pile of dishes or diapers or here at church. Do you know we have a group called The Crew, Clean and Repair Everywhere. They meet on Tuesday morning. I said at 8 o'clock, but it's really at 8.30. They meet right out here at the kiosk. They paint, they sweep, they clean, they fix up, they do more technical stuff that some of us wouldn't know how to do because they have those skills, but they're a huge blessing. And they're doing exactly what Jesus did. They're just serving. You could help in Sunday school. They probably need somebody helping hold babies right now. Jesus calls us to serve, to serve God by serving others. So the Passover meal has begun and everybody knows the script and Jesus has corrected the first big gaffe and he's sitting back down and he's encouraging everybody, look, what you just saw me do, do it as well. Serve others and leave the rest to God. And then they're having these conversations around the table and you know, I think a large group like that probably broke down into several little conversations simultaneously, but suddenly it seems like Jesus' mood changes. 
I mean, he's disappointed that he ha- they haven't caught his example and his encouragement to serve, and his, uh, but his heart is broken that one of the 12, one of his brightest pupils, has been with him for three years, but he's never let Jesus into his heart. His heart is hard. His heart is set in a different direction from Jesus, and disaster is soon going to follow. Here's how John tells the story, starting in verse 21 in John 13. After saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit, and he testified, truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. The disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke. The other uh, uh, gospel stories tell us they each asked reflectively, Lord, is it I, is it I, is it I, wondering Would I do that to Jesus? Do I have the capacity? Yes, every one of us have the capacity to betray Jesus, to not live up to his name, to not represent him well. But they're each asking in reflection, is Jesus talking about me? Well, one of the disciples whom Jesus loved was reclining at table at Jesus' side. So Simon Peter motioned to him, ask Jesus, of whom is he speaking? So that disciple leaned back against Jesus and asked him, Lord, who is it? And Jesus answered, it is he to whom I give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. Of course, they didn't have forks and knives and spoons, so they would use bread or like we would use a chip where we'd put it in dip and and then eat it. Jesus offered one across the table. When he had dipped it, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. And then after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him and Jesus said to him, what you're doing, do quickly. No one at the table knew why he said that to him. Some thought because Judas had the money bag, Jesus was telling him, Buy what we need for the feast or give something to the poor. Remember just last Sunday where Mary had this extravagant gift to Jesus and anointed his feet with rich perfume. Judas had been the first to comment, kind of stunk it up when he said, why wasn't this sold and all the money given to the poor? So here Jesus might be saying, they think, go do something for the poor. So after receiving the morsel of bread, he went out and it was night. You can fool all the people some of the time. You can fool some of the people all the time, but you can't fool God any of the time. And God was looking into his heart, and Judas rejected the love of Jesus. Jesus said, he who shares my bread has lifted up his heel against me. That that phrase, lifted up his heel, is a picture of the horse kicking the master who's trying to help the horse. The entire meal is this appeal to Judas, washing his feet, giving him bread dipped in the bowl. Judas, come back, come back. I love you. Open your heart to me. And Judas walked out of the room with clean feet because of Jesus. And he walked out with food in his mouth placed there by Jesus because of love. And he walked out with Satan in his heart. Now Satan, you know, we give him sometimes too much credit. He, he can't be everywhere all at once. But Judas, in his own ambition, had opened the door to his heart to Satan. Judas had been the treasurer of the group. He was capable. He was sharp. He was quick thinking. I wonder if he thought Jesus was too timid. I wonder, you know, as he was deceived on this, I wonder if he thought, you know, Jesus, we've come to Jerusalem. You have all the qualifications to be the Messiah. You've got the power. I've seen you give sight to the blind. I've seen you raise the dead. So if Jesus gets arrested, he will be able to break free from the, from the handcuffs, and he will be able to rally the troops, and you bring in the angels if necessary, throw the Romans out, and set up a kingdom. Maybe he just needs a pull. Besides, it's a chance to make an extra buck. So Judas had gone to the high priest and had said, what would you give me for him? And they gave him 30 pieces of silver. Why didn't everybody in the disciples group know it was Judas? 
Well, he hadn't done this yet, and he looked like everybody else in the group. Everybody trusted Judas. You can't always tell what's in people's heart, but sooner or later, it, it will flower. It will give fruit. And as he left the other disciples thinking he's being responsible or compassionate, but Jesus knows. How did Jesus love Judas? He accepted him. He protected him publicly. While seeing exactly who Judas really was, Jesus continued to love him for who he could become. Jesus is even still here as he's handing him the food, is, is, is wanting to say, turn in your heart. In fact, what would Jesus have said to Judas if given the chance? Out of Professor Ray Anderson, and he was on a trip to San Francisco, and he saw in a public restroom where somebody had scratched on, uh, in the bathroom, Judas, all is forgiven. Come home. Judas, all is forgiven. Come home. And Ray Anderson began to ponder, what would Jesus have said to Judas if given the chance? Well, he came up with two things. Maybe you've already thought of an answer. But he said, Jesus probably would have said, my love for you, Judas, is greater than your sin against me. That's true for all of us. Regardless how much sin we've done, whether it's just a little or a lot, Jesus' love is greater still and can cover all of our sin because of his sacrifice and atonement on the cross. And number two, not only was it your sin that caused me to die, but it was the will of my Father who sent me into the world. It was God's plan from the beginning of the world that I would come to die for human sin. Judas ignored Jesus' invitation of love. He had made his decision. He went his own headstrong way. And John adds, it was night. It was dark outside, but it was darker in Judas' heart. Without Jesus, there is no hope. And there was no hope for Judas without Jesus. Well, Jesus has been trying to teach them, serve one another. He serves Judas, and Judas departs, and then Jesus goes on to lesson number two. He says, a new commandment I want to give you. And he shares with his friends, as his closest followers, and in this he uses one word five times. See if you can pick it up. When he had gone out, Jesus said, now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify himself in himself and glorify him at once. Little children, yet a little while I'm with you. You will seek me, and just as I said to the Jews, so now I say to you, where I'm going, you cannot come. What word did Jesus use five times? Glorified. What's he talking about? Jesus is saying, I'm going to be glorified by going to the cross, by being arrested, by being abused, by being put on trial, by being accused, by being beaten up, a crown of thorns placed on my head, stripped naked and nailed to a cross. And die in agony for you and for me. Glorified? How is that being glorified? For Jesus, the cross is the ultimate act of love and obedience. He's doing exactly what God sent him in the world to do. If you and I are able to accomplish with our life exactly what God has created and prepared us to do, we will be glorifying God with our lives. Jesus was bringing glory to God by what he was accomplishing in the humility of the cross. How do we do it obeying God? 
What does God want from you and from me? That's my prayer as we begin this spiritual quest, this journey together, that each of us would pray that prayer. God, what do you want from me? The answer is yes. With my time, my talent, my treasure, what do you want from me? The answer is yes. You are my God. This is your word. I know you and I love you. Your Holy Spirit leads us in this world. What do you want in my life, in our life together? We will follow you. Jesus is covering two powerful lessons. One is serve one another. They'd failed that test. Blow that one off. Move on to number two, love one another. Love one another. What does it mean to love? Most people often think, when they think love, they think romantic love. They assume they're going to fall into it. In fact, uh, when our, our children were little, one of mine said, Dad, I slipped into love with you. Like she had stepped on a banana or something, you know? <laughs> That's not what Jesus is talking about. He's talking about a different kind of love, one that's a, uh, intentional, one that is focused. He says, a new commandment I give you. Love one another just as I have loved you. You are to love one another. By this, all people will know you're my disciples if you have love for one another. What's new about this commandment? Jesus had been asked, what is the greatest commandment in the whole Bible? And he had answered, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and your neighbor as yourself. So what's new about this commandment? Jesus' new commandment was that believers were to love believers. Say, so wait a minute, I know that guy. Love one another as I have loved you. He served them in the humblest of jobs. He died for them. This is a tall order. Love one another as I have loved you. It's not an emotion. You cannot command an emotion. Jesus can command an action. We think, well, it's not real if I don't feel it. Yes, it is. Love can be real without feeling it. Jesus didn't feel like going to the cross. It was not a comfortable place. He had no comfortable feelings there. He acted in love. You act in love when you don't feel like it. When one of your children has broken your heart, you love them. When your spouse disappoints you, you stay committed. You keep talking and caring. When your Christian brother and sister disappoints you, you love them like Jesus loved. How has Jesus loved us? He's served us. He's taught us. He's met our needs. He's paid the price for our forgiveness. He's given us salvation. He cares for us. He's always thinking about you. And Jesus is saying, here's something new. Love one another. Love your Christian brothers and sisters so that the world looks at you and says, oh my goodness, how they love each other. There must be something going on in that church. What is it? You know, when people ask me, tell me about your, your church where your pastor. Tell me about South Shores. They don't know anything about you. I, t I don't tell them, well, this is a you know, church has Baptist roots or anything like that. I just say, it's a kind church. It's kind. They're gracious to each other. Even when they disagree, they're gracious. And you say, well, I haven't experienced that. Well, then help start it. You know, let's, let's be that. It's what Jesus is commanding us here. Love one another. The world will know you're my disciples if you love one another. But thank you. Thank you for being that spiritually mature to be kind and gracious when we don't see eye to eye. Do you know Jesus is saying this is a new commandment. It impacts every area of your life. You love one another. It's going to make you unselfish. It'll change everything. How do you do it? How do you love one another? Well, you would, and this isn't an exhaustive list, but you would spend time with each other. 
It's great to spend time in a Sunday school class or a Bible study, a growth group, somewhere where you're with other people. You actually get to know them. We would worship together like we do on, uh, on Sunday morning in multiple locations. We would serve together. We've talked about that. Let's get serving somewhere in the name of Jesus. We'd give each other lots of room to be unique. We would forgive each other when we clonk each other's and we would sacrifice for one another. Jesus said, love for one another, love one another as I have loved you. And he's taking it to a whole new level. People will know you're my disciples if you love one another. Not if you sing the right songs. Not if your theology is impeccable. God forgive our messy theology. Not if we do everything right or wear the right outfits. Love one another. So Jesus has just given this, them this gem, this new commandment. Love one another. And guess who talks first? Peter. He says, Lord, where are you going? I say, what? Did you just miss everything Jesus said? Well, if you go back and read in a few verses, in verse 33, Jesus said, you know, I'm going to be leaving. And so Peter had raced right on past Jesus' command to love. He said, Lord, where are you going? And Jesus said, where I'm going, you cannot follow me now, but you'll follow me later. And Peter said, Lord, why can't I follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. And Jesus said, will you lay your life down for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you've denied me three times. And Peter completely misses hearing what Jesus has said about loving each other. Jesus is commanding us, love one another now. And Peter wants to know, tell me about the sweet by and by. Because it's a whole lot tougher to love people who are alive now than to think about heaven and how great it's going to be, and it is. And Peter wants to know about the future, and he completely commits Jesus' command. You know, if Peter had really even been listening to Jesus, when Jesus said, before the rooster crows, you'll deny me three times, the smartest thing he could have done was to find the designated driver and have him take him home and put him to bed. Instead, he had more confidence in himself than is warranted. And he promises Jesus full support, and he tried to pray with Jesus, but he falls asleep in the garden. And then he gets up, and he takes a stab at defending Jesus, but he cuts somebody's ear off instead of taking the guy's life. So before they put Jesus in handcuffs, Jesus actually has to pick the guy's ear up and, 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 and get it back on the guy's head and do a miracle. And Peter tried to be there for Jesus, but then his fear caused him to be yelling and screaming, I don't know Jesus, I've never heard of him. And then the rooster crows. And Peter remembers Jesus' prediction. And he realizes his failure. And he runs out of that place in tears. How did Jesus love Peter? He went to the cross for him. He forgave him publicly, privately first. He returned him to his place of leadership. And Peter had just looked too far ahead. Jesus is trying to teach two lessons in the present. Serve one another. Love one another. They failed the first one. They didn't do all that great on the second one either, did they? Except there was one guy there in the room... John. He had a brother James, James and John, the sons of Zebedee, which means sons of thunder, it says in Mark. And these two guys, I mean, they were, were young, and John was probably the youngest of the disciples, and, and they were impetuous. They, I mean, one village, they didn't respond to Jesus appropriately. They said, hey, do you want us to call down lightning and thunder from heaven and destroy these people? Like they would have the power to do that. And Jesus transformed them, transformed James into a martyr, and then John 
was transformed into the apostle of love. Love as I have loved you became the theme of John's life. He caught this lesson. He was profoundly impacted. If you go read his writings, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John and Revelation, I mean, it changed him forever. And this book of John that we're in, of all the 12 disciples, he's probably the youngest. He's the only one to show up at the foot of the cross to watch Jesus die. He's the one that was given Jesus' mother as a responsibility to care for her as family. And he became a leader of the church in Jerusalem. History tells us he lived into his 90s. He was the only one who died of old age of the disciples. He did some missionary work, and he authored these five books in the New Testament, and the persecution forced him out of Jerusalem. So he and Mary moved to Ephesus. He was arrested there and placed out on the island of Patmos where he had this vision of the Lord. He wrote the book of Revelation just about the glory of Jesus Christ, King of kings and Lord of lords. And when asked to preach, here was his sermon, 1 John 3.11, but you can find it in a lot of places. Love one another. This is the message you heard from the beginning. We should love one another, love one another, love one another. He got it. He lived it. He taught it to others. So where do you come out? If you were to do a little self-evaluation, would you be closer to, G- to Judas? You know, Jesus, you're a commodity, and I follow you when I like to. And... Um, when it's inconvenient, I'm going to go my own way. Maybe even push you a little bit, Jesus. To Peter, Jesus, you know, tell us, Jesus, tell us the future. Tell us what's ahead. Because you're talking about here and now, but this is too difficult. Tell me about then. Or would you be like John? Jesus told us, serve one another, love one another, even when it's hard. Love and serve. A new commandment I give you, Jesus said. Love one another as I have loved you. You must love one another. By this, all will know that you're my disciples if you love one another. Shall we pray? Dear God, thank you for your word. Speak to us even now by your spirit in our hearts that if our hearts are hard like Judas, that we will allow them to break here before you. That if our hearts are distracted like Peter's, that we will focus and listen to your voice. That if we are impetuous like James and John, we will be stilled before you and we will take your word as our command and we will go love one another so that the world may know that we are yours and you are God and we love you. Amen.